Hello, welcome to the Split Row Podcast. I'm Steve Packnick, and joining me as always, he's brushing up on his sheet music. It's Gabe Acevedo. I mean, am I really? I haven't seen sheet music since I played the flute over 15 years ago. That is quite a long time ago. You, were you good at reading sheet music? Mm, no, I used to memorize everything. <laughs> just you just memorized I, it? I just memorized it. We used to take um, the music books um, and take pictures on um, razors, because that's what I had when we were in high school, take the pictures and memorize the notes. So when the test came, we didn't know how to read it. We just memorized it. That's what we used to do. Oh, man. That's like... Awful. That's weak. Weak. Yeah, of course. I got really I, good at you, reading sheet music. Think, I did not care about playing instruments. I cared about acting and dancing. I just had to take that class. What about singing? You never did you ever sing? Um, I mean in musical theater, I did sing. So you didn't have to read the sheet music, you just kind of listened to the tune and then you yeah, they memorized just, it. <laughs> yeah, they're like I'm like cuz I'm not a singer. So so you're not the so, first person they went to when they were asking the questions about that stuff. Absolutely not. And the, and the teachers knew. They're like, "Oh, your gifts are in acting and dancing." not so much singing and playing instruments (laughs) that's fair that's fair it's always a good time uh the reason i bring it up we're talking film scores today we're going to talk about hans zimmer we're going to focus on him uh it's a really fun discussion today i'm really really excited about this so we've got a lot i've been listening to a lot of music all week watched a bunch of movies that are getting me prepped up for this i'm very very excited you excited to talk about it i am really excited really really excited it's, it's, it's one, one of the, those things that you forget, or at least I forget, how much I actually do love film scores. But it's, you know, when we watch film, they're so in, they're, they're right there that you don't necessarily pay attention. So I'm really excited that we decided to talk about this. I was just about to say the exact same thing. <laughs> it's one of those <laughs> overlooked pieces of filmmaking, and it's the most, it's one of the most important. So we'll definitely be talking about that in a little bit. But first, we got to get right to the headline. There was an update that came out. Um, uh, yesterday, it was yesterday, it was Tuesday. We're a little delayed this week because we had some scheduling conflicts and then we had, we started recording yesterday and then the power died. We actually recorded at the beginning of the podcast, stopped, re-recorded it because it was really bad and we stopped. And so we stopped after, and then we were exporting the podcast and it crashed. The computer, the power went out. Our entire upload crashed, so we're back. We're recording it again. It's the third take of this podcast. It was so, not meant to be yesterday. That's that's what it is. It was just not meant to be. And to be fair, it was just the intro. So luckily, from <laughs> yesterday to today, some better news has happened. I think yesterday wasn't wasn't much going on, but really big news coming out last night, and that's about the Oscars. Uh, the show that we're really excited about, and hopefully some of our listeners are really excited to watch. Well, they announced last night that part of the show, eight of the different categories that are presented, of the 23 categories, is it? Yes. Eight of the categories are going to be presented to the audience before the actual live telecast starts. What they're going to do is not do a pre-show, not during the pre-show, not on the red carpet, but in the hour leading up to the actual ceremony itself, they're going to present eight different awards to people at that time, record all of it, all, all of like the, the the people coming up, all the different nominees, record it, record the acceptance speeches. And then what they're going to do is they're going to edit those parts down and they're going to broadcast it during the actual live ceremony. So they're not going to have them during the three hour ceremony. They're just going to show the clips during the ceremony. So that's the plan. Um, and obviously because it's a change to the Oscars, which any change to the Oscars leads to massive backlash, 
pre-recording them is leading to an absolute meltdown of the industry. <laughs> uh, and I, I know that, Gabe, you have some very, very um, inflammatory things to say about this decision. What do, you, what do you have to say about the Academy's decision to to go ahead and do this? Listen, even taking away the logistics of this that we we could take, we could go into, I think this is disrespectful. I think this is horrible. I think this is just a shitty, disgusting move that disrespects the craft. First of all, one of the categories is editing, and you're asking the editors of the show to edit their own categories out of the show. It is ridiculous. Score is one of them. So we so, might not yeah, let's, get, let's you know, we might over, not get Simmer. Yeah, let's just go over the different categories that are going to be in the, uh, that are going to be pre-taped. It's documentary short subject, film editing, hair and makeup styling, or sorry, makeup and hair styling, film original score, production design, film short animated, film short live, and sound. Those yes. are all going to be in the pre-show. They're all going to be in the pre-show. I think yeah, it's sorry. just, I think it's, I think it's just a disgusting, shitty move. I really do think so. They tried this like four years ago in 2018 um, during the commercial stuff with backlash came and it didn't happen. Um, I just, you know, it's these people work hard. Filmmaking is not only about your A-listers and best picture. Um, I don't think the Academy is really taking into consideration a lot of aspects that they should. They're thinking that, oh, you take, you bring the runtime down and you bring in three comedians and do skits and that's going to automatically bring audiences. It doesn't work like this. This is not 1997 when you had 50 million people tune in to see Titanic win Best Picture. Media is consumed in different ways. People are not as connected as they used to. We're in a post-COVID world. Things are, are just different. And the fact that under... You know, the, these tech people are not going to get their moment. You can make the, you, I know people are making, ah, oh, but they're still going to be putting in the show. There's nothing like a live reaction in the moment. You know that an hour before, two seconds after winning, we all know who's going to win. There's not going to be any emotion. I make the argument that, oh, I already know how to win. I could go to the bathroom or go to the kitchen when this award is going to be presented. Because I an hour ago, I learned who won. I think it's just awful. I think there are other ways to work with um pumping the numbers up for ratings um yeah and i'm really i'm really pissed as somebody who just loves the art of filmmaking and i actually do like the shorts i do like makeup i do like score and i want to see those people win and sometimes in those categories that's when you get those heartfelt speeches and historic moments and i just think it's sad i think it's sad and i hope and i'm praying to the film gods that the backlash is strong enough for them to reverse this decision I have some interesting feelings on this right now because I'm I'm like kind of against it, but I'm also at the same time like it's not my show. They can do whatever they want to do. The whole beforehand saying like, oh, they're still getting their Oscar moment is a little disrespectful because like it's not really their Oscar moment. You're not seeing it. You're seeing an edited version and you're not in front of the people who are outside. Like they say, yes, it's in front of a full loaded Dolby Theater, but it's not fully loaded. You're not having the people who sit in the front row. Those people are still out on the red carpet during the first hour. You know, they're on the red carpet. So they're not you're not gonna be winning your award in front of Denzel Washington. You know, you're not gonna be sitting there, you know, going up there to, to accept your award for best animated short, and Denzel's not gonna be staring at you. You know, like he's gonna be out there working the red carpet. Um so I I definitely do feel you on that one. 
some of the things with this, I feel some of the issues certainly are the fact that they've chosen specific categories and these specific categories, which basically say these aren't important enough to be in the regular show. So we're going to put them and relegate them to like pre-show and then just edit them and, and show clips of them during the show, mm-hmm. which, you know, is definitely disrespectful to these people. I think that's definitely an issue that you have. Now, I see where they're coming from with the idea of trying to do something different with the show. They tried something very different with the show last year with uh, what the, the, the show they had last year, which is absolutely atrocious. I think the whole ceremony itself was terrible. There was nothing interesting about it, nothing exciting. It was watching just people walk around and accept awards for three hours, which you know I enjoyed and you enjoyed, but we don't, people aren't gonna tune in to watch a three hour acceptance speech of just people. It's just not exciting. So I think there's definitely some major, major issues in this. There's definitely some stuff they have to try to figure out and sort through. But this is definitely not what it's going to be. They have to figure out something else. I mean, the idea of doing it during commercial breaks, I actually don't mind so much if you do it during commercial breaks and edit it at that point, because then at least, you know, we're not seeing, because what what ultimately they're going to edit out, they're going to edit out all of the individual applause after each person, they're going to edit out the walk up and they're going to edit like some of the transition times. I'm not against that necessarily. It does, you know, there is downtime in the ceremony. I'm not 100% against that because I do think one of the things that they did at the last Oscars is they cut out all of the quote-unquote fun stuff. Now, to be fair, I'm not excited about the fun stuff this year because of who's making it. Like I said in the last episode, I'm not really excited about these hosts. There's nothing about these hosts that I find to be like particularly inspiring or exciting or thrilling for me. So I think the skits that they're going to put on are probably going to be a little weird and they're going to be like, well, isn't this weird that we're in Dune or, oh my God, we're in a James Bond movie. Like it's not going to be, I think, really exciting. So I'm not (laughs) excited for these clips. Uh, But I know that one of the things that they're going to try to do is create a celebration of movies, right? That's really what the Oscars has been in the past. And really that's one of the things that Oscars were really good at. They were celebrating the year in film. Well, the biggest problem that I think the Oscars are having now is they're not celebrating the year in film. They're trying to do it by adding in like, the Oscars fan vote, which is becoming an absolute garbage heap of like people. That Cinderella tro- is currently winning. Yeah, people are just trolling it. So like it's it's ridiculous. And then they're trying to add in like, oh, we're going to have some skits and some fun stuff here. That's going to be getting people excited to talk about the year, the past year in film. Well, you know how you could talk about the past year in film? You can nominate them for awards. You could say that these things are important, you know? We can say things like No Time to Die, which was a really, really big movie, or uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. You can give them, you can like nominate them for awards, have some of the people there and actually give a chance to these people, not just like have the token award there or have like, you know, Tom Holland maybe show up on the red carpet just to have him there, but like actually put him, put people in, in like conversations, have conversations around these things, have those films nominated. Because ultimately the Academy a number of years ago decided... We don't care what you like. This is what's what you like isn't important. What's important is like film and cinema, not movies and blockbusters, but like cinema. You know, they decided that back in 2010 when the King's Speech beat the social network and beat Inception and said like those movies are cool. Yeah, you might like those, but you know what's cool? The King's Speech cuz that's cinema. And like that movie sucks. Okay? That movie's terrible. It's not fun. Nobody cares about it. And what it did when in that moment in 2010, I think is right when there was that downfall of the Oscars. That's really when it fell off the cliff because it basically said what you like doesn't matter and isn't cool. So what it did is it it just 
it just ended up just destroying the entire rest of like this downfall and has led to where we are now. I think I, that's really one of the problems. And they're trying to spice it up with like changing it, yep. but I don't think it's going to work as and, well. And and I agree with you. And you know, this this year, the model for this year is like celebrate movies, which is obviously is the core of every year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just so ironic that they're going to celebrate movies yet move eight awards out of the ceremony, which is ridiculous. You know, when I mentioned earlier, the logistics of it, you just said it like the telecast starts an hour later from when these awards are going to be presented. What are we going to be watching when half the things are still happening in the red carpet and there's already handing out. It's just a mess. Um, The idea of, you know, this will bring down runtime, which then will bring in viewers. I want you to find me five people. Give me a handful of people that says, oh, they're not giving documentary this year, um, a short or editing this year. Let me watch the Oscars. This is the year I'm going to watch the Oscars because the editing category is out of the ceremony. It's ridiculous. It just makes no sense. And then when it comes to what, you know, I just, what should they do? I think it's, they're walking. I do understand they're walking on this fine line of, you know, it's all a business, um, commercials, whatever. I think they should just lean in, in this Super Bowl model. I do think that, like you said, I think the Oscars should go back to this idea of celebrating movies. I would love this idea of, for example, this idea of bringing up the nominations at 5 a.m. in the morning. Why don't you do that in a primetime special? Why don't you turn the Oscars into the Super Bowl of movies and you sell spots for trailers, for movies to release their trailers in the commercials? What are some of the I'm not I don't care about football, but for the last six years, I've been watching the Super Bowl with friends, food, alcohol. Why? Because the trailers, halftime show and stuff like that. Turn the entire day into a movie celebration and then give us this the Oscars as this huge primetime thing. I think there are things that they should do and that they could do and play around with that doesn't alienate their core fan base of movie lovers that, like me, are really pissed that this is happening. You're alienating the people that are, you know, the 9 million people that are actually going to watch, you're alienating them. You're never going to have 50 million viewers ever again. That's never. That's just not going to happen. But this is not the way to go about it either, at least for me. It's just it just doesn't work. Well, I mean, looking at what you just said, they're not actually alienating us. They're just making us mad because like ultimately, are you going to watch the Oscars? Oh, absolutely. There's nothing they can do to make you not watch the Oscars. You know what I'm saying? Like it's it's you're going to watch it no matter what. You're going to watch it. So there's nothing they can do to make you be like, you know what? I'm not going to watch this anymore. So what they're trying to do is they're going to try to convince all those people who are like, no, I don't want to watch the Oscars. They're trying to figure out how to make them watch the Oscars. Shortening it in this way isn't really the the right way. And like I said before, the, the hosts are not the right choice. The idea of trying to put skits in there in the same way that they're going to is not the right choice. The Oscars have become too predictable. They've become too boring they're not relevant anymore and the way to make them relevant is to actually expand the categories they don't need to chop categories off if anything they need to add more categories i have no idea what those categories could be but they almost need to add more categories oh, to let's make start it more with exciting. stunt and casting directors those two categories need to be there oh i think 100 stunts that's that's an easy in but um you know i don't think there's 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 some other things that they need to do but you know what's going to happen if they add in stunts <laughs> The stunts are going to be like for Nightmare Alley and they're going to be for like these other movies. They're going to be like, oh, yeah, uh, 
the power of the dog is going to get stunts. Belfast is going to get stunts. That's what they're going to do. They're going to do that stuff. No, okay? no, no, that it's not going to be that... like No Time to Die. It's not going to be uh, Shang-Chi. It's not going to be mm-hmm. Godzilla versus Kong. It's not going to be Mortal Kombat. It's going to be the movies that are already getting nominated are just getting nominated in another category that nobody cares about. And the thing that really is bad is, in my mind, the worst part of the Oscars is the movies that people watch are not represented. Like I said, I, I agree with you. The only movie that people actually paid to go see and is represented in this year. They uh, really need to fix that. I agree with you. I think this, um, you know, it started, you said that 2010 was 10. the year when it started. Um, I agree with you. I think I would argue that it, like the first drop to the beginning was 2008 when The Dark Knight mm-hmm. wasn't nominated. And obviously that led to this rule change of going back to 10. And then it went back from the sliding scale from five to 10. And then this year we're back to 10. Um, The expectation was that that was going to bring in these huge popular movies. And you have your exceptions. You have your Toy Story 3s. You have your Black Panthers. um, You have your Dunes this year. But if you look back the last decade it's mostly been the independent art film movies that people don't watch people didn't watch the darkest hour people didn't watch the artist people you know uh, right film lovers did but the regular average person no what did people watch american sniper Mm -hmm. hacksaw ridge black panther spider-man and i'm not saying that this has to become the people's choice awards but I do think that one or two spots should go to a celebration of everything that encompasses a movie and that reflects what people watch. I yeah. am with you on that. I am a full lover of the art house independent film and we should reward what's good. But critics and the art house is not the only thing. You mm-hmm. also need to go back to the Titanics, to the Forrest Gumps, to the Gladiators, to the Chicago's, to the ETs, to the Jurassic Parks, that just doesn't happen anymore. And I think they should really take into consideration that because that was the purpose of expanding the best picture category and it's not giving them what they wanted. I mean, like I said, I think I said this a couple of weeks ago on the pod that like those movies just aren't being made anymore because directors are being sucked into making franchise movies, which is now the bigger problem here. Mm-hmm. I think if we move away from more franchise movies, which is not going to happen because studios make too much money off of it, then we can have more of those types of movies being made. But you know, it's just it's it's just not going to be solved. I'm I'm actually I would be surprised if this plan goes through. I think this was an idea to test the waters yeah. and see how people react. You know, I mean, it's not like the Oscars can get worse press. <laughs> you know, like really, <laughs> they, they already they already have a boring host, like boring, uninspired hosts. The movie slate is not that great and like nobody cares. So already nobody cares. So all of this is doing is generating press so that people might actually watch it. Um, I don't hey, know. Bad it, press it, is still press. Yeah. It's, it can't get any worse. You know? So I, I wouldn't, I'm gonna, I'm I wouldn't honest, be surprised think, if they don't have, if they decide to scrap this plan. And I think, that, you know, I think, oh, well, we'll see. This is my prediction that viewership is going to go up from last year because last year was the heart of the pandemic. Yeah. You know, you are going to get just more viewers no matter what, but it's, yeah, it's not the right way to go about it. Um, I know the guilds started um, coming out today against this. Um, the first one was sound saying how like three years ago when they put sound editing and sound mixing together, the deal was that they will never put sound outside of the main telecast. The president of the guild came out saying that that was the deal and they're not going through with that deal. 
So it's, you know, it's going to be an interesting couple of weeks and I'm with you. I think the Academy does not go through with this. If they do, they have big balls. What do they have to lose? Ultimately, they have nothing to lose. Their ratings are already projected to be the worst there ever have been. So, you know, they have nothing to lose. <laughs> Ultimately, who cares at this point? We'll see. I mean, we we do because we really enjoy that. But uh, I don't think people are really going to they're not going to turn it off because of it. That's for sure. Yeah. So let's talk about one of those Academy Award that is going to be nominated, shown beforehand, possibly, which is uh, going to be original score. That's what we're going to get into today. But we'll talk about that after a real quick break. So today we're going to be talking about film scores and specifically we're going to be focusing on Hans Zimmer. Um, now film scores have been a part of movies since the very beginning. Even the first movies in the quote unquote silent era had music accompanying them. I mean, as movies have evolved, so have film scores. I mean, we moved from the thirties and forties around the big sounds of people like Alfred Newman to the unique sounds of, you know, Bernard Herrmann in the fifties and sixties. And then you have obviously the genius of film scores and John Williams who came to dominate the seventies, eighties and nineties. And then you have even experimental sounds of like Thomas Newman, Danny Elfman, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross of today. Um, but for us, what we're going to be focusing on mostly today is the one person who's come to define our generation uh, in both big and kind of big movies, and that's Hans Zimmer. Uh, his his scores range from things like Madagascar to Gladiator, and then from like Cool Runnings to Inception. I mean, the dude has range, right? Uh, so with his most recent Oscar nomination and the fact that he is the favorite this year for doing the score for Dune, we decided we're going to take a moment, talk about him as a composer, and then share some of our favorite pieces uh, of all cinema's film scores. So um, in order to do this, we, you know, we love sharing about our film scores, but there's a person who we know who listens to a ton of film scores and helped work through film scores that helped her earn her own PhD. And uh, that's Dr. Kayla. She's back into the show. Uh, she's coming back in. Welcome, Kayla. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here to talk about film scores because, like you said, my dissertation was brought to you by film scores of the last 30 years. The thing would not have been written if it wasn't for film scores. Gabe, is this something that helped you get through your dissertation? Uh, not necessarily get me through dissertation, but obviously I listened to a lot of film scores and they helped me go to bed. Do you? Do you listen to them every night? Not every day, but they do help me go to bed a lot of, a lot of the time. I am Ooh. every day. And if I'm writing, we're talking like six straight hours of film scores, almost <laughs> exclusively. <laughs> oh, my God. So thank so, you for having me. <laughs> of course. Of course. We have to have you in here. I mean, it's funny. We, we've played like this game where we play like listening to film scores and like film score trivia and things like that. And now all of a sudden you're crushing me when it comes to certain composers because it's just like heavily in your rotation there good job gabe who do you listen to when you who do you listen to when you go to bed composer wise yeah i do love obviously john williams but i do love ennio morricone a lot um he's probably one of my favorites that i listen to when i want to listen to film scores he's definitely on the like top three that i play first that's fair i mean for me when i go to bed it's basically my what lulls me to sleep is Max Richter and Ludovico Iannaudi. That is who I'm. I am nice. You, you put those people on. I am loving it. Don't get me wrong, but I am knocked out. It's it's good. <laughs> uh, it kind of makes it hard sometimes when you watch some of their movies. Uh, you know, like 
<laughs> watching one of the movies. I was watching, what was it? Nomadland and Ludovico Iannaudi does the score for it. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, I feel really tired now. <laughs> I start to <laughs> lull off. But we're not talking about someone who's going to lull us to sleep. Okay. Today, we are going to be talking about Hans Zimmer. Uh, you, If you've watched movies in the last 25, 30 years, you've seen a score, a movie that has been scored by Hans Zimmer. Um, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that if you watched a popular movie in the last 30 years, you've listened to a Hans Zimmer score. Um, so I really want to start off with talking about some of the things that make Hans Zimmer Hans Zimmer, right? How is it that you know that you're listening to a Hans Zimmer score? That's what I want to start off with. So, okay, we'll start with you. What are some of his telltale signs that like, oh yeah, definitely Hans did this? I mean, I think the very first thing that comes to mind is is epic. It's large scale. It's loud. It's deep like deep, deep rumbling sounds, whether that's with the horns, whether that's with percussion, you know, you're going to, it feels like you're getting punched in the chest when you're starting to watch a film that features a Hans Zimmer score. But then I think when you start to peel back those layers, once you get past that initial weight of his scores, it's, they're always so detail oriented. I think that he does a beautiful job of making a really intimate connection to the scene in which he's scoring, um, which always has, you know, just features of the plot. And he's able to find like these unique themes that he's able to carry throughout the entirety of a movie. Um, And I think one of the things that I love most about him is how he plays with the concept of time within his scores, which makes a lot of sense because, you know, one of his most frequent collaborators is Christopher Nolan, um, and he has built entire his entire career on the on the concept of time. Um, but I think the way that Hans Zimmer is able to do that within his music just demonstrates this immense level of creativity and also an, a really great understanding for how to tell a story through music. And I think that's one of the things that I love most about him. So, Gabe, what about you? How can how do you identify it usually? Um, Kayla used two of my favorite words that I was going to use, which is deep and horns. Um, you know, he, it, I, I'm going to add to that, the vibrato of those sounds, because every mm-hmm. time I listen to, to his scores, something in me just like, just shakes, it just trembles. And you know, this is Zimmer. I recently watched, rewatched Dune and I'm like, oh, like I'm shaking. Like my body's like feeling the vibrations of the score. Um, and I'm like that simmer and and this in prepping for this episode i started listening to a lot of his scores and he is very intelligent in bringing things that you don't capture in the moment until you pay really close attention for me was that vibration in my body listening to those sounds there's something about me that my brain just turns on when i'm listening to his music and it just makes me connect to what I'm watching. Kayla said it best is in his detail to storytelling in both a grand and personal scale is really, really intelligent and works greatly. I'll also say for somebody who is considered, you know, a god among scorers and, and composers for his age and the amount of years he's been in the business and the epic things that he's done he never feels repetitive to the point that he feels experimental in a way that feels like a young composer coming up and trying new things. And I think that's just the brilliance of Zimmer and the magic that he has in movies 
the fact that he's like, I've been doing this, I don't know, 40 years and I've done these epic things that you all know, but get what? guess what? Every time I do another movie, it's going to feel fresh. It's going to feel experimental. It does feel like this 20-year-old, some new composer. I'm going to try new things and I'm going to win my first Oscar. Zimmer's doing that and blowing half the kids way younger than him out of the water with what he does. I mean, I, I agree. Some of the things like you guys both mentioned, I mean, certainly the the horns and the strings are, are you know, a very, very tell sign of it. If you watch Inception, if you watch Gladiator, you're going to hear those sounds like, you know, the, the Inception. I We just rewatched it re- this past weekend in preparation for this. And, you know, that score is so pivotal. It's so just in your face, very, very loud. But it's not just the loud parts there. That's it's like being it's not just loud. He's also incorporating different instruments and different things into it. The way he incorporates strings into his things. Like if you watch The Dark Knight, you know, the way he does the Dark Knight trilogy is really incredible. You know, you know, he has these the the sound of Batman in those movies, for example. The, like with the Batman theme is really, really great because it has like these really aggressive, aggressive stringed instruments that he's playing the violin or the cello in ways that you've never heard before in movies before. He's playing them like they're electric guitars, playing them with such aggression that drives it forward there's very little percussion in some of his movies and it's amazing what he's able to do because he just uses the cello or uses the bass as as a percussion instrument he uses the horns in such an interesting way and at the same time while doing that he has these sweeping themes that are really a big part of his is they kind of go in waves and he's always constantly just washing and blowing you away with his scores. They're, they're, they're fantastic things. They're, they're scores that make you have to turn down your computer TV when you're watching them late at night, because you're afraid that your neighbors are going to all yell at you. Even if you live in a house by yourself and like you're in a house that's separated from by it with a yard, your neighbors will still hear it because Hans is just blowing out your speakers so much. Uh, and I really love what you said, Gabe, about how like his scores are not the same all the time. He's able to reimagine himself and rewrite himself, which is such a big part of his entire career. I mean, he has such a huge range here. And although there are some common strengths through this, I do think that he has some common things. Like you can hear in Gladiator, this like similar trends to what happens in The Dark Knight, to what happens in Inception. You can hear some of the same things that are identifiable, but they're definitely very, very different. Um, he decides to go about that and incorporate different things. And it's it's really impressive to just see what he's able to do. So moving on with that, uh, okay, what, what about his scores make them stand out in this era against like other people who have been working? I mean, there's, there's some seriously some iconic people who are working right now. It's a really pivotal, great age for composers. But what is it about his scores that really stand out to you that you really enjoy? I think I kind of want to go back to something that Gabe was saying about how, you know, Hans has been in the game for a really long time and yet everything that he's doing still feels so fresh. And I think, you know, I am not a musician by any means, but one of the things that I find so unique about Hans is how he uses synthesizers and how, you know, Duke got his start in like new wave synth pop in the eighties and to kind of see how he's still using technology and electronics in his scores now is really, really cool. And I'm sure, you know, as technology's evolved, he's only gotten better and better and probably has been just so excited to see how things have unraveled. Um, 
or not unraveled, but have kind of unfolded in recent years as technology has kind of um, evolved. But I think for me, Hans stands out because no matter what the film is about, if it's a Hans Zimmer score, I have an emotional reaction to his music all the time. I mean, I listen to film scores a lot and no matter what, his music to me is always is always an emotional reaction. It's always pulling me in and I don't even need to see something on the screen. It's making me feel something in isolation just with the sounds that he's been able to put together. Gabe, what about you? What is it that uh, makes sense stand out for you? It was exactly what Kayla said at the end. I think the way, I don't, I mean, I, I would have to go back and think if he's ever done a score for not a great movie. Uh, we're not a good movie. He, he has. There's a, he's done, he's done over there's 150 a, scores. I'll tell okay, you. Okay, so there, there's, he's, done, there's, he's there. had some misses, but those are not of his fault. They're, but they're, I think that even it, his music, and this is what, like you said at the beginning, we were saying sometimes you know all the components of what a movie is, we just forget because we're just focusing on the story and the actors. I think it's very easy to miss the arts and crafts of movie making. But even, I would dare say that even in a bad movie, I think you're still invested because of his score. I think his score just grabs you. Um, and again, it's what Kayla was saying with the synthesizer. He's so experimental in 2022 when literally, you know, you could say that if you want to be a composer, just download an app and you can start composing and put things together. But I think you have to have a gift and I think you have to have a talent and he does. The fact that he just grabs me with his music and makes me believe what is going on in the film apart from the story and the acting is just what makes Simmer great. And I think there are a gazillion amazing composers out there. There are a handful that do that to me and he's one of them. I mean, I agree. I think his some of the things that help him stand out to me are really just, you know, his, certainly it's it's he has a certain style and he he uses it very very well. He uses it in the in the right movies too. Like he's he's being not cast. That's not the right word. He's being hired for the 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 right the right movies, and th and that's something that um, I think is really perfect for him. I think he's you know he he's making a lot of action movies. That's really his bread and butter. Like just last year he he ended up doing um you know army of thieves no time to die dune um the year before he ended up doing wonder woman he's he does things like the lion king um he does x-men movies he does christopher nolan movies he does uh, all sorts of different movies uh he he, he has such a, a huge thing and his scores are so great at not just portraying like just like generic rock and roll action he takes him in such a different way i mean looking at i remember watching man of steel which is a movie that a lot of people don't really like but i remember just being so excited about it because for me it's the score that's so good in that film mm -hmm. i think the trailer for that movie was one of the most watched trailers at the time and it, it was an incredible incredible score um in just the trailer, which really sets the mood and sets the tone. He's really good at setting tone for things. I mean, if you look at something like The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight has a very iconic score, and it's very big, and it's very awesome for, like, you know, all the action sequences. I mean, it's a Batman movie, so it's got to be big. But it's not just that. His range extends beyond the Batman theme to the Joker theme. The Joker theme in that movie is an absolutely incredible theme 
when written. I mean, the, the, the theme that the way that you know it's the Joker is you hear it's one, it's basically one note that is played in a very long and strenuous way. And he decides to take that character who is absolute agent of chaos and boil it down to one note in terms of his writing of that character's uh, sort of uh, motif. And it's just one note that is like heavily strained and manipulated and just agitated in like in chaos motion. It's not a clean note. And he knows that it's not going to be a clean note. And he writes it in this agitation. And he's so good at setting the tone and setting those themes. And going into what even like Kayla was saying earlier about like the fact that he messes with time, uh, you know, not just necessarily that he's messing with time, but he gives you those cues. If you watch something like Interstellar, which is probably one of his best scores he's ever written, um, he uses the use of time, and you can hear some of these different things in the way that he's writing it, whether it be the um, the way that he is uh, articulating it with the strings, the fact that he actually has metronomes playing at certain scenes and that. He's doing it in a way that reminds you that this matters. Every single second that is going on matters. And he's one of those people that is able to take you and set that tone. And I think it works very well for the movies that he's been working on. And I think he, I mean, especially with like Dune, I think it's an incredible thing that I'm really excited about. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it sets that tone. It sets it very otherworldly. And that's one thing that I think is really, really key because he thinks about those things and he's very, very pointed when talking about them. Okay, I know you you wanted to uh, expand on that a little bit. I remember you you sent something saying that. Do you want to talk about that real quick? Yeah, so I think um, we need to go back for a second to you were talking about the themes within The Dark Knight and you're talking about how, you know, we have the Batman theme, then we have like a very distinct theme for the Joker that carries throughout the film. Um, But I think we need to go back to the film right before that and talk about Batman Begins Um, because from the start of this trilogy, he was incredibly intentional about how he wrote specific music for specific characters. So to give you a little backstory, um, Christopher Nolan obviously brought Hans Zimmer in because they work really well together. Um, But Hans also wanted to bring in James Newton Howard, who he had always wanted to do a collaboration with. And they thought that would be a really great opportunity to do Batman Begins together. But what they did, which was completely brilliant, was each of them wrote different themes for the alter ego of um of bruce wayne so one of them wrote the theme music for bruce wayne and then the other wrote the music for batman so we can see this person this character who has you know such conflict in his own life and then the music reflects that conflict and that tension that he's constantly working through um, and then just because I'm completely obsessed with Hans Zimmer, I think that, you know, we've been talking about his attention to detail um, and just this creativity that he has. And if you ever look at the track names for the Batman Begins score, all of the track names are different species of bats. And then specifically, if you look at tracks four through nine, the first letter of each of those bat species spells out Batman. Just, you know, <laughs> fun little fact there for you. <laughs> but the dude is a genius and deserves all of the respect. 
for sure. I mean, there's some there's there's such good uh, stuff that goes into that. I mean, what's really great is his range goes beyond the Christopher Nolan films and the big, loud, slamming horns and strings. So, Gabe, I'm going to start with you on this. Is there any scores that you particularly like that um, are different than like the big, huge, loud scores that he's known for? Yes, there are two actually. Um, one is a horror film, um, and it's The Ring. I think the score for The Ring, I rewatched The Ring this week um, for this episode because I didn't know it was Hans Zimmer who did The Ring actually until I was prepping for this episode. I'm like, wait, what? So I rewatched it and I picked up on what I mentioned. I think The Ring was the reason I mentioned the vibrato that I feel every time I listen to his scores because his score in The Ring is not extremely super loud a la Dune, a la Dark Knight. Um, but the the piece that grabbed me was when Samara, if you've seen, if, for people who've seen the movie, I know Steve has not watched this movie. When she comes out of the well, the score that he uses, the pieces of music that he introduces in that scene literally has everything shaking in the film and I'm shaking with it. It is just so haunting and atmospheric. It just puts me in it. And I think it was just beautiful the way, and again, just like Kayla, I know I come from theater and dance, but I don't know about instruments or anything. Um, The way he puts sounds together was just so brilliant. And then the second one that I really love that I do think it's really underrated just because the movie ain't that great um, is the score for the Da Vinci Code. The score for the Da Vinci Code, I think it is beautiful. It is very ethereal. It captivates religion very well. I grew up in a Roman Catholic household. And every time I see that movie, the scores transfer me to the, the music I used to hear in church and in Catholic school and it just immerses me in that sacred space that the movie is trying to create and I think a lot of it if not all is because of what he does with the music and the way he mixes the the ethereal sounds of religion versus his innovative style and I think that the Da Vinci Code is a one of those that you're like this is very underrated. I think the Vinci Code is one of the ones that is not in your face, but when you listen to it, you're like, oh shit, this is really good. <laughs> he is great. Okay, what about you? What are some of the other ones that you think of? So for me, one stands out because it is so such a big departure from his typical sound. Um, and that's the holiday. You know, I think that is one of everyone's most watch- rewatchable films, but the score is wonderful because it's whimsical, it's romantic, it's just the right balance of sad and yet hopeful. And I think it's it's almost it's almost delicate. And it really, I think it captures the femininity of the two main characters, Kate Winslet and Cameron Diaz, in such a in such a beautiful way. Um and just throughout the whole thing, it's just it's a joyful score. You can tell that he got a lot of pleasure out of writing it. And I think it's really, it's so interesting. The fact that one of the male leads, Jack Black's character is a film composer himself. And within, I almost feel like it's Jack Black's character is almost an avatar for him because there's a whole scene where he plays uh, this game in a blockbuster. So you can tell how old this film is, Um, but it's just showing so much respect for the history 
of film composers. And there's just such a, the fact that Nancy Myers has that scene in there just shows that she also has this immense respect for the power of scores within films. I mean, for me, one of the ones that stands out that I really enjoy, I mean, it does have some of the elements of some of the bigger, louder scenes in there, but um, I really enjoy The Last Samurai. This is one that we just rewatched recently. And what's really impressive about this is in going into this, he, he recognized that he had this like gap in his education in terms of like scores of different countries around the world that he's been really focusing on because he's an absolute master of his craft. He, he really is focusing on learning how to play every instrument, not just any instrument, every instrument he wants to play. And he spent a lot of time working on this score for The Last Samurai and making sure that it was on point, that it represented exactly what Japanese music sounded like. He even took it to workshop it in Japan and played it for people and was really concerned because he's like, I don't really know much about Japanese music. And he spent like, well, like months studying Japanese music. And when he brought it there, he got a lot of feedback from other composers from Japan who were like, how do you know so much about Japanese music? And how, like, I can't believe you, you, you used all these little motifs that, you know, are really in, uh, great signs there. And uh, I think that's one of the things that he does really well is he's able to respect this and, and, and respect movies and respect the, the art of movies and cultural, different, like global cultural music there that I think is really, really great. And he, he recognizes that, the Western canon of, of film score is not the only standard here. And that's what's actually really great about the, uh, his score for Dune, which is which is what he just came out with. Um, in watching some of the special features there, he goes on to talk about how one of the things he was really, really interested and excited about doing with writing this score, despite the fact that, one, this is one of his favorite books of all time because it's, you know, it's a, it's a great book. Um, he was also excited to write about, write the score here and write it in something that's extremely different from what you would hear in a lot of other movies. Because what he's, what he recognizes is like, why would this planet, you know, however many thousand years into the future this is, because it does take place in like, our universe but in the future why would this desert planet on the other side of the galaxy have the same western instruments they're not going to have violins they're not going to have all of the you know they're not going to have a symphony orchestra that's hanging out on arrakis you know so he actually invented new instruments he invented new ways of creating sound and he perfected this and translated it into a score that celebrates and recognizes this he uses vocals very, very differently from other people. I mean, you can hear some of his iconic vocals in, in Dune. You can hear them. Most, most I think, iconic is in his score for Gladiator, I think, is the most iconic. You know, it's the, the scene in the end of the movie when he puts his hand on the wheat field. You know, it's the very iconic and kind of memed scene nowadays, but it's, it's, the, it's the perfect use of the female voice, which is something that he is very known for doing. And I think these types of things are, are just things that make him stand out and, and really stand up. I mean, we didn't even talk about um, probably his, his his most watched score. I mean, everybody that listens to this podcast, I guarantee you, has watched at least one movie, and that's his Oscar-winning movie. The only movie in which he won his Oscar for. Everybody that listens to this podcast, if you haven't seen this movie, we might have some issues. He won the Academy Award for The Lion King. 1994 he won best original score for the lion king and if you listen to it beyond the the amazing music which is not him uh the score itself is incredible he has those moments when he's talking to mufasa he's talking to his father you can hear the score and you go 
oh yeah, that's Hans Zimmer right there. And, and it's just a beautiful theme. And it, it's very, very powerful. And it's very emotional. His scores are, are crazy powerful and emotional at the same time, which is something that I'm, you know, not many people can do. Include the power and emotion. People can go really emotional. You have some amazingly emotional scores. But the power and emotion at the same time is really, really difficult. Gabe? Um, I just wanted to say, uh, and sorry for adding another thing, um, but now that you mentioned The Lion King, which obviously if you haven't seen The Lion King, what do you, do you even like Seriously, movies? Seriously, uh, I don't know who uh, who listens to our podcast that hasn't seen The Lion King. But now that you said that, um, one of his, for me, one of his most beautiful scores that I think people forget, um, because it may be not in a movie that is super epic, is The Prince of Egypt. And also, I think because the Prince of Egypt, a lot of people think of the song when you believe with Mariah and Whitney, but the score for that movie is phenomenal. The way that he used traditional music from certain countries with his distinct style that on paper maybe shouldn't work. And he makes it so visceral and beautiful and melodic and just, just, storytelling is beautiful and it, you said lion king and I, i'm like wait he also did the prince of egypt another animated movie and i think that score is just stunning once you peel away the layers of when you believe and stuff like that you really listen to that score it is stunning what's funny is i actually had i was talking about uh i don't even know how it came up but i was talking about movies in my class today and in, in my school and one of my students was talking about how they love the lion king I, I didn't prompt this but they talked about the lion king and then they transitioned to oh did you know that the person who did the music for the lion king also did the music for spirit and like i was i was not that like I know, i've never seen spirit okay the horse movie um now listen a lot of my students at my school ride horses so they would have seen a horse movie it makes sense to me never saw it but the fact that they know that this that the composer is the same person is really really big so it just shows you the power that Hans Zimmer has you know I think that's that's quite amazing there and and Can beyond it, Zimmer it shows you the power that music has on film mm -hmm, that we 100%. don't necessarily that people don't really pick up on 100% okay did you have something else to add there yeah I just the only thing I wanted to add was thinking back you know Lion King was obviously a huge film for all of us we are the perfect age we were the target mm -hmm. audience yep in my childhood, we listened to the score, not just the mm -hmm. not just the soundtrack, but we were little, little kids running around the house and my parents played the score, which could be a reason why I'm completely obsessed with Hans Zimmer, why he is my favorite film composer of all time. Maybe one of the reasons why I even have a favorite film composer of all time. But I mean, it's worth saying that, you know, as children, we listen to the score without the film being on no big deal. Like we could just be playing in the house, but I was, how old were we six, seven years old. And I had an appreciation for the score because it's, it's just that powerful. It's definitely one. It's definitely up there. I mean, his scores are have defined modern music. I think that's, what's really great about it. Now uh, we're going to get into our favorite scores of all time, like all scores, but uh, just really quickly, do you have any that you really specifically want to shout out for like your favorite Hans Zimmer scores? Like, let's give just two. I know it's gonna be difficult for Kayla, especially, but two Hans Zimmer scores that you are extremely passionate about. If you can only limit it to two. So we'll start. Uh, 
we'll start. You're you're good, okay? I'm prepared. Yes, okay. I knew you were give gonna me... limit me, so I've thought yeah. it out. Oh wow, okay, good. So mm -hmm. give me give me your your top two. Top two, Hans Zimmer scores. Um, <laughs> on Inception, uh, Inception's number two. I think I think it's phenomenal. Um, I mean, I talked about Batman, like The Dark Knight. Obviously, you know, we've already gone through that, but I think Inception solely because of the song Time. Um, I have listened to Time, just that single track, for five straight hours on repeat. And maybe that means I'm a little insane, but just the power of that single song alone means that the whole thing can be weighted up to number two. Um, but my favorite score of Hans Zimmer of all time is Interstellar. Whole thing top to bottom is completely brilliant. And if you have the chance, watch the special features about how he worked through developing that score because it it will blow your mind. And I think it just solidifies that he is one of the best film composers of all time. So yeah, Interstellar, number one. I mean, that's not that's not a hard number one to, to go with. I mean, when when looking at the special features, you're you're right. It's definitely worth the watch on this on on that DVD. Uh because like like he says, he he wrote the score without knowing what the movie was about. He wrote the score. And then he the way he incorporates church organ is just incredible. An it's incredible one of the largest organs score. in the world. Yeah. It, it's it's an incredible, incredible score. Brilliant. Gabe, what are your two? Number two, I have to, Lion King, you know, like Kayla said, I would also listen just to the score, not only the songs of that movie. Um, I mean, come on, Shadowland and, and all that is just outstanding. Um, obviously, he won the Oscar for it. Like, come on, just amazing. And it's probably because the, of the nostalgia factor. It just, it's shaped, Lion King is one of those movies that shaped, probably like Kayla said, our childhood when it comes to films. Number one, from a movie that I don't like, it has to go to Interstellar. I really do think the score, that is one of the probably the two things that I like about that movie. Um, the, I think I think Interstellar might be his crowning jewel um, from um, just a buffet of crowning jewels that he has. But I do think Interstellar, as of now, for me, would be his magnus opus, his magnum opus, because it's just so fantastic. I've seen that movie three times. I don't like it, but every time the, it ends, I'm like, the music for this movie is just on something else. Like, I would go to a symphony and just listen to the score just for that. So I think Interstellar is probably his his best so far, and it's something that I really, really love. I mean, for me, again, it's not difficult to have that be your number one. I was going to just go out there and say, like, my two favorite are uh, Shark Tale and Broken Arrow. But uh, I might have to change my opinion on that. He he did do both of those. I'm no, so sure those, that they're great. <laughs> no, but... those are not them. No, uh, I would say my one of my favorites is one that you know it's it's so interesting because he ends up replacing uh, Johan Johansson for uh, Blade Runner 2049. I think it's a, it's an incredible score. It's very atmospheric, very experimental and electronic, and really sets the stage for that film. I think it's an incredible score. But my favorite score has to be his score for Sherlock Holmes. I am really surprised that this didn't win the Academy Award for best uh, Oscar or best uh, score here. Um, I think it's an absolutely incredible score. Um, and it's it's just a little bit shocking, although I, I understand why it didn't win another the movie that won, I think we're going to be talking about in a little bit. But um, I think it's an incredible score for, for setting the, the stage for the, the 
the film's mood. It sets it for the period. The use of, I'm guessing, a banjo has yes, never I been actually... used that way before. And I think the way they use the banjo is just absolutely incredible. That's a, that, that's an that's an amazing, amazing uh, score there. So we had had an entire conversation about specifically about the score and figuring out what that sound was. Um, and so you're right. Like, yes, it's it's a banjo. He used like broken, like a broken violin kind of thing. But he also used um, a cymbalom, which is like this weird version. I think it's a, they're calling it a type of chordophone, which is similar. It's like a harpsichord. But he also used an bass, which I have no idea what it is. And there's no picture of it on the Internet. Um, but again, like dude's experimental and he is playing with instruments and sounds that would fit within a particular time and within a particular culture uh so he'll go to any length to make it work. i think it's incredible i mean even in that like one of the things he asked for is a broken piano <laughs> like right. you know i was gonna say did he just like buy like broken pianos and started playing them yeah, he's like, can I have a broken piano so I can write the score? They're like, you you can have the most expensive piano in the world. Why would you want a broken? He's like, no, but I need a broken one to write this oh, score. And it's it's just it's such an awesome awesome score, and I I'm such a fan. And he'll go to those lengths, and he'll go to those those places to get the the sounds that he wants. And that's why I really do think that he's going to win the Academy Award for Best Score here with Dune. If you've seen Dune. It's it's incredible. Uh, the score right from the very first notes. It's this weird sound that comes in, and you're like, "What is happening?" And right from the first, from the get go, it it just pulls you in, and you are immediately excited about watching this movie. I think that's one of the things. It's a huge achievement in this film, and I I'm very excited to hopefully have him win his second Oscar here. If not, this episode is completely for waste. So, <laughs> no, it's not a waste. We just spent the entire time talking about Hans Zimmer. It's definitely that, not a waste. That's fair. So with that, let's transition into um, our favorite scores. So now we've decided to go through and talk about some of our favorite scores here. These are not lists of the best scores of all time. These Now, granted, some of them are the best scores of all time, but this is a list of some of our favorites or, you know, some of the most influential scores that... You know, we really enjoy. I mean, every single movie is improved by the score. There's no movie that's made worse because of the score. You can't have a film without one. But these films that we're going to talk about here and the scores that go along with them are just things that elevate them to the next level and are in, just endure because of the scores that we have. So we'll start off with Kay. You are, you're our guest. So why don't you take us away with one of your first scores? We have five each. So take it away. Um. So for me, if we... Five each, not including Hans Zimmer. Not including Hans Zimmer, and oh. we're also not we're not repeating as well. Oh, damn. so only okay. one per one per person. Oh, one per person, one per. Then I'm gonna per go composer. for Thomas Thomas Newman for Meet Joe Black because I definitely knew both of you might have already had him, so I need to claim Thomas Newman. Because oh no, 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 we're Hans not, not we're not doing it that way. Oh. No, we're not drafting composers. We're not drafting. That's what exactly what I thought you were saying. I think he already knows all of ours, so we we I know knows that we're yeah. not repeating oh. anything. We're not repeating any. Yeah, we're not drafting. We're just okay. We're just naming off our favorites here. So you're going with okay. Thomas Newman. Thomas uh, Newman, Meet Joe Black, specifically for Meet Joe Black. Yep, it is already a beautiful movie, pretty long, but the score to go along with it is just as quiet and just as subtle. But what I love about it is just like these massive sweeping themes that he has connecting the whole score. Um, 
anyway, we could talk about Thomas Newman for a whole hour, but we will not. So for me, Thomas Newman, meet Joe Black. Gib, what's your first one on the list? My first one is Max Steiner, um, Gone with the Wind. Um, you know, we can argue the merits and the issues that that movie has, but I think some of the great things that that one of the great things of that movie, um, of that epic movie, we can't deny it's a full on epic is the score. And I think it's one of those instances that the score, especially in 1939, became a character throughout the movie. Um, it's just as, as soon as that title card hits at the beginning, you, you, you hear that epic score and then it comes into this full on orchestral combination when she gives her famous soliloquy as god is my witness i'll never go hungry again it's just beautiful one of my favorite scores that i actually that's one of the ones that i listen to constantly and i just love i love the movie um but i do i think the score is just fantastic um the first one on my list is actually i'm going to also go with my thomas newman first uh he did the score for finding nemo Mm. and finding nemo is 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 a very interesting movie in the Pixar canon because it it changes I think it changed the tone of Pixar. It made it it made it a, a darker than it already was. You know, uh cuz the first thing that happens in that movie is a massacre of a family, you know? And he <laughs> takes it if you really think about it that's really what the beginning of the movie is. Yeah. Uh, but he he sets the tone in such an interesting way. It's a beautiful score that plays with, you know, it's it's very quiet and very somber and not sad but like somber and beautiful his his it's very very quiet and ocean like and you can feel that within it but then he also has these themes of just fun and excitement that you have like when you're on the reef or they're on the mission to go find to go to to, to go to sydney you know he has these motion moments but then he also is able to have these themes of of like nemo's theme itself you know like his theme of when he's by himself uh, there, there is a very, very beautiful score. It's very quiet and it's something that you could just listen to and go to bed to and just like relax. It'll, it'll, it'll mellow you out pretty easily. Uh, Thomas Newman, a phenomenal, phenomenal composer. So, um, you know, the fact that we have two of his on here is pretty impressive. So yeah, that, that's my number. That's my first one on here. Uh, Kay, what's your second one? So my second one is actually, um, and I didn't realize this at the time when I picked him um, is Peter Gregson's score for a movie that came out in 2015 called A Little Chaos. Um, it was Alan Rickman's, I think it's one of the only movies that he directed. Um, but Gregson, Gregson himself is, is a musician. He's a cellist. And I don't know how Alan Rickman found him or got him to score his film. Um, but it's a beautiful, beautiful score that obviously he's a cellist, so it heavily features string instruments throughout the whole thing. Um, but I I love it. It's one of the scores that I listen to on repeat. For me, one of the other reasons why I love it so much is it is reflective of a lot of music that Max Richter also was composing around the same time. Um, and I think he was heavily influenced by him. Um, but yeah, so a little chaos by Peter Gregson. He hasn't done any any film scoring since. Cool. So it's a one and done. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yep. Okay. What's your What's your number two? Um. So my number two. You probably don't know this name, but you definitely know this movie and one of the most famous cues in film history. 
comes from Bernard Herrmann and the soundtrack, the score and the cue for Psycho. Um, yeah. You know, I think Psycho is one of the most iconic soundtracks out there. It's definitely one of the most iconic cues in that shower scene ever. Um, funny thing is that Herman didn't want to do this movie originally because of a pay cut. The movie was, you know, very um, low budget, but he said yes. And he used um, that low budget to his advantage. Um, Hitchcock had asked for it, um, a jazz um, score, if, if I'm not mistaken. And he was like, there's no money. I'm going to do an all string score, which is what he does. And then originally we Hitchcock didn't want a score for the shower scene. And Herman went against his orders and did it. And then once he played the score, Hitchcock famously, you know, said, I was mistaken, paraphrasing here, let's use it, and gave us one of the most iconic scenes. And I do think all movies obviously are played or, or the score are very instrumental, but I do think Psycho is probably top 10, if not top five, of a clear definition of a movie that shows you how music is so effective in creating the atmosphere for a movie. So... Herman's Psycho score, fantastic. One of my favorites. Oh, for sure. I mean, that score is is absolutely brilliant in that thing. I mean, the fact that they're playing the wrong part of the violin in that scene when they're <laughs> yep. in the shower scene, the wrong part of the violin is being played, and that's what makes it what sets it up. I mean, Bernard Herman is really iconic for his mm -hmm. work on Hitchcock films. He's just very well known for that. I mean, his score for Vertigo is fantastic. Vertigo. I mean, oh, he's he's very very good. So, um, yeah. That's that's definitely that's definitely a, a good a good look there. So um, my next score that I want to talk about is going back as well to the uh, the 1960s as well. I think actually the same year, 1966, and that's uh, Ennio Maricone's score for The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. This is a film score that uh, man does this this pop out. This is a this is the iconic score of western films of spaghetti westerns in particular now he did do the scores for the earlier movies he did them for a, uh, a fistful of dollars and for a few more dollars but i think it all comes together in the good the bad the ugly this is definitely one that stands out above the rest of them i think it is the highlight of his uh one of the highlights of his career i know he's gone on to make other things and he wasn't even nominated until the 1979 i think is his first nomination uh but this really stands out the fact that he's able to take this very very unique sound and all of a sudden like make it the sound of westerns you know like he takes an electric guitar that like twangy electric guitar the iconic sounds of westerns all come from this score itself um the Rush for the Gold, I think, is the name of the the, the tune. Is you you you've heard it before because it's in I think all the Modelo commercials now. <laughs> Modelo Special, it's, those commercials have this this the theme in the background. It's very very iconic. Um, everything about it, I think, just stands out and shines. I think this is a brilliant score. The film is made excellent because of it. I mean, the movie's a three hour movie, but the score drives it through and never really builds up that full tension until the climactic scene very late in the movie and i think that really really pays off i think it's it's a beautiful score not just in those parts in the other parts too the somber parts of the movie i think it's really great too so i'm definitely going with uh i know maricone for for the good the bad the ugly okay do you have what's your third one now my third one is craig armstrong specifically for uh far from the madding crowd and so if you honestly, if you look at my picks, you will see like there's a very 
common trend um, for scores that heavily feature string instruments and orchestras, <laughs> which is what I love so much about specifically about this this score is it's one of those it's one of the scores that I can listen to for hours um I think one of the at least for me one of the markers of a good score is how re-listenable it is almost like you know how rewatchable a movie is it's one of the scores that I can just listen to all the time and Craig Armstrong is incredibly talented and an, another one of the composers that has this massive range he's a frequent collaborator with Baz Luhrmann he did um he did the score for Moulin Rouge, for Romeo and Juliet, for The Great Gatsby, but then he also does quieter films like Far From the Madding Crowd. He also did, you know, this small little movie with this tiny cast called Love Actually. Uh, so just to see what this guy is able to do in just this range of period pieces and big, loud musical dramas to like really intimate human stories. He, I, I love a lot of his music, um, but specifically I narrowed it down. I was able to do it specifically far from the maddening crowd. There you go. Uh, Gabe, what's your uh, second one there? What's your, or sorry, we're on third, your third one. <laughs> God. So my number three um, is from Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, you know, I've, I'm here humming it in my head, <laughs> that infamous score from the first one. Um, and I believe it's done by Klaus Badelt, produced by Hans Zimmer. Um, I believe he is one of Hans Zimmer's protégés. Um, he constantly works with him. Um, interesting thing is that he replaced, I believe, Silvestri um, in this movie. Um, and he comes in and does this iconic Pirates of the Caribbean score that, you know, again, here talking about it, I can just, I'm humming the Pirates of the Caribbean score because it's just so good. And then he takes it even further with that famous intro, which for me is one of the best introductions of a character ever when Jack Sparrow shows up for the first time. And that score just boom, elevates the movie in what I think is just a fantastic movie because I think the first movie of the of the Pirate series is amazing. That score is fantastic. Hans Zimmer comes in then in the second and third and completely takes over and elevates it even more. But Pirates of the Caribbean, that score, remember when that came out in 2003, there was a moment like that score was in every raver party, in every, in every club, all the DJs were remixing that score. And I think Pirates is just a staple of, of the 2000s. And it's quickly identifiable, identifiable by people. So Pirates is my number three. What's actually funny is, uh, you know, I know that Hans Zimmer did a lot of the themes for that, but he didn't end up filling, up, filling out the rest of the score. But what's really funny with that is I remember that was actually, I think, my sophomore year of high school. Or maybe it was my junior year. I don't know. One of the years I was in marching band and that was done. That was played as one of our halftime shows, we played the score from nice. from Pirates of the Caribbean. So that was a big part of it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's great. It's a very iconic one. And you're right. Like whenever you watch that movie, the score that Jack Sparrow has is incredible. The he's a pirate song. If, if you can find that is, is definitely an amazing, amazing piece for sure. Um, speaking of amazing pieces in, you know, things that win, win awards here. Uh, my next one is one of 
my favorite scores. And it's actually, I'm kind of cheating because it's three movies in one. Uh, and that's the, the score that goes along with the Lord of the Rings trilogy uh, by Howard Shore. Mm-hmm. This, this score has to be one of my favorite of all time. It has to be one of the best of all time in terms of the way that it creates motifs, the way that it has different themes sprung throughout this movie. This is an epic movie, right? This is like, if we consider it one movie, it's a, if you watch it without the extended, it's nine hours. If you watch it with extended, it's 12. Okay. This film is a complicated movie. And one of the things that's so great about it is its score. It's able to take emotion and put it into these different themes. And the themes are played very differently as well, which I think is something that's so important with it. You know, you have the theme of the Shire, that it doesn't just equate to the Shire, but it's every single time the hobbits reconnect. And every single time that they communicate with one another, they have these different moments where they're able to come together and you it, it portrays this emotion of, of love and of uh, peace and harmony and all of this stuff that they are striving for. And the theme, how it's played in the movie reflects some of those of the emotion that's going on on screen at the time. You know, you have the fellowship theme, something that is really, really great and plays at different points and it's different levels of glory, depending on the type of mood that's going on here. Um, and you even have, you know, further themes further in the movies, um, you know, the theme that plays over of Rohan, which I think is an incredible, incredible piece. One that uh, has a lot of message and meaning behind it and power behind it. I think something that is just absolutely incredible. I, I'm blown away every time I see this movie. And one of the main reasons for that, despite the fact that I love these movies, is I think the score is at its peak. I think this is one of the peak scores that we have. It's an incredible, incredible score. That's why I think Howard Shore won the Academy Award for it twice, which is pretty amazing. So, I mean, that that's incredible to me. Incredible. Okay, what's your number four? Um, my number four is Alexander Despla, um, who is a, has been nominated so many times for best score Oscars. Um, but specifically I'm thinking, and this is really hard because I want to talk about, about two. Um, the first is Deathly Hollows. He did parts one and two. And so I think what's so interesting about those films is he comes in and does the last two of an epically long and I don't want to say drawn out in a bad way, but like this, he was the end to the closing chapter of a very beloved film series. Uh, and I think that he captured all of the, all of the pain and emotions of those last two films. Um, one of my favorite, one of my favorite songs within that is Lily's theme, um, which comes up multiple times in both films. And it's just, it's so beautiful and so, so sad and almost maybe melancholy is a better, is a better word for it. Um, but just captures this this love between a mother and a son who really just never were able to have a relationship. Um, so I love I love the darkness and also the hopefulness of his scores for Deathly Hollows. Um, but he also a little bit more recently he did the score for the Greta Gerwig's Little Women, mm-hmm. um, and I absolutely love that score for how he captures just the coming of age of these four sisters. Um, for me it again i feel like i I used this word before when we were talking about hans zimmer's score for the holiday but for me like so much of it is whimsical it captures just this 
really tender relationship between the sisters and also, you know, the ups and downs of, of being a girl and within that time period. And it's, it's kind of fitting that you uh, decided to talk about Harry Potter a little bit, because I think his, his scores, uh, the original themes written by someone else. So I think is on Gabe has one of the original composers and I have yeah, one on my list too. So. I didn't want to bring him up because I knew <laughs> that's, that that's fair. Gabe, you, is this, is this the do. time to, to bring him up? Um, he's not yet. He's my last one. Okay. Then, then I'll, then I'll, 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 I'll bring him in too. I'll bring him in. I'll say, bring him up. Uh, so we'll what's your, what's your, in a second, but I do want to say that I think that, uh, Despla pays homage to that original, like the groundwork oh, that sure. this guy did yeah. in mm-hmm. a, in a very respectful way. That was so the last thing I wanted to add. So what's your number? What's your number four there? So Gabe? my number four is for somebody who received 10 Oscar nominations, two wins that iconic soundtrack, such as aliens, Apollo, Braveheart, Avatar. But my cho my, my choice is, for Titanic and that James Horner, um, who is unfortunately not with us anymore because he passed away in 2015. Uh, Titanic obviously is my favorite movie of all time. I think it's it's phenomenal, but a lot, you know, you can't deny that Titanic, the crafts in it are fantastic. And you can't deny that the soundtrack is just amazing. That sweeping score when we see that transition from the Titanic underwater to when it's new, like 20 minutes into the movie. And that just, that score just comes in and it just sweeps you away. The score throughout, um, talk about mood. Um, and like Steve said earlier with Lord of the Rings, the motifs in it, the scores on the moments of Rose's character throughout are just fantastic. And he also co-wrote one of the most famous movie songs ever, which he won both Oscars that year for score and song. Um, My Heart Will Go On. I just think that score is fantastic. Um, It obviously, I think every element of that movie elevates the movie. But without that score, I think a big piece of the movie would be missing. Um, And it's interesting that it was originally offered to Enya. Enya declined to do that score. And then James Cameron went back to Horner, who they have worked, but had a falling out like 10 years prior when doing Aliens. They had never worked after Aliens together and then came back, did Titanic and ever um, and every single Cameron moving from there on until his until Horner's passing done together. Um, So, you know, Titanic epic movie with an epic score that definitely, like Steve said, with Lord of the Rings. And I repeat, just shows you the themes throughout the characters in that movie. It's definitely a, a huge score for a huge movie and something that you know is totally deserving. It's it's a it's a great score. Um, my number four here is another great score, one that I think redefined scores for the twentieth the twenty first century, and that's the score from two thousand tens The Social Network. This I think is an incredible score. This won the Academy Award for Best Original Score. It's by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, who you, um, who you might know from Nine Inch Nails. They came out and they decided to write a score for the first time and they wrote the score for the social network, which was so unbelievably different and set a completely talking about mood. This set a very different mood for a film. They tried out a bunch of different types of sounds and different themes for this film. And the the way that they were able to create and engineer specific types of electronic sounds with the use of amazing piano work with um, synthesizers, with all sorts of weird electronics to incorporate into this score. It's not just the the beginning theme as well. It's not just the theme that's in the opening credits, which is 
absolutely incredible, but it's some of the the driving themes throughout it that are really, really good. It's a haunting score at certain points. It's an incredible, incredible piece of work that work to reshape exactly what type of sound movies can have in the 21st century. I think this is an incredible achievement and something that is going to make this movie last a lot longer than it should in all rights. Uh, you know, the, the story has aged a little bit now, you know, being on 12 years later from the social network, the story around Facebook has changed quite a lot, but this film is just still an incredibly cool and iconic film because of the different choices that they made. And I think the score really elevates this to make it one of the best films of the 21st century, for sure. Okay, what's your uh, last one here? So my last one is um, Dario Marianelli's score for Pride and Prejudice. Um, I first of all i just i love the film um and when i listen to the score the score so accurately captures just everything that's going on on the screen that i can listen to the score and have the entire film play scene by scene in my head because he just understood the assignment so well um and i think it's so cool that for marianelli almost every time he's worked with joe wright who's the director of pride and prejudice he gets nominated for all the awards for the scores that he writes for Joe Wright's films. Um, so two years after he did Pride and Prejudice, which was nominated for Best Original Score, he did Atonement also with Joe Wright, wins the Oscar. And then a couple of years after that, he does the Anna Karenina score. And again, like with Joe Wright, gets nominated. So it's almost every single time. It's like similar to the relationship, I feel like, between Christopher Nolan and Hans Zimmer. It's just too artists who understand each other really really well and they're both able to capture these really specific moods um, and are able to bring these scenes and these stories to life um, and I think that Marianelli does such a great job specifically with Pride and Prejudice which I mean I'm guessing Gabe's seen it but Steve you haven't seen the film no <laughs> have you it's it's beautiful and Jane Austen's writing is freaking hilarious. And I think that they do a really good job of, of bringing that to life on the screen, especially it's hard to follow up the BBC miniseries with oh, the beautiful, beautiful Colin Firth. Oh, um, but oh. I think this film does a really nice job of adapting the book and the music that, that Mary Nelly write, wrote for it. Um, I think just makes it almost even more beautiful than the miniseries was. Good. Anyway. I mean, I, I haven't seen it, so I really don't know. <laughs> if I'm honest. Uh, you should watch it. Possibly. Gabe, why don't you uh, share with us, you know, Gabe's talking about someone who has been nominated a couple of times here. Uh, why don't we talk about someone who's been nominated the most times? Listen, I got to end with, the dad of film composers with who I think is the god of film music composers. And it's John Williams. And my selection is probably the most recognizable and to many, probably the best soundtrack out there and probably the most favorite score for everybody or for a lot of people. And it's Star Wars. Um, you know, John Williams, you you know, everything he does is iconic. Just you, you just go through his repertoire. It's just insane. Um but Star Wars, not only because I love Star Wars, but I think the score, 
people who don't like Star Wars know that score, like that score, play that score. That is the marks of a great piece of music. And the fact that this weird sci-fi space movie, somebody comes in and does a symphony orchestra soundtrack to this was just groundbreaking, especially in 1977. This is just one of the most recognizable iconic pieces of music. I have to stop talking because I will never make it justice. What else can we say? I mean, Williams and Star Wars, just epic and probably the crown of film scores out there. I mean, he, he did win the Academy Award for this. There's no doubt. He won the Academy Award for it. He's been nominated nine times for Star Wars because there's been nine Star Wars movies. He's been nominated every single time for it. So it makes sense. He's the most nominated human being alive right now. He's been nominated 52 times for yep. the Academy Award. He's won five of them. I mean, if you look at his scores, they are just absolutely like wall bangers. <laughs> They're incredible. Starting with, you know, I'm, I mean, I could go earlier, but I'm going to just name a few to start off. Just Jaws, Star Wars, Close Encounters, Superman, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., uh, Indiana Jones, Empire of the Sun, um, Home Alone, Schindler's List, um, Saving Private Ryan, AI, Harry Potter, Catch Me If You Can. <laughs> I mean, all of them are just absolutely incredible. I mean, he yep. also, you know, and all of that, he also wrote the theme song for the Olympics. Yep. The Olympic theme. He wrote that. But what He's absolutely incredible. And he's he's also on the top of my list. My my number one here is uh, Jurassic Park, one that he wasn't nominated for, which it's just, it's, it's my favorite score of his. Uh, because, simply because, uh, I don't think it's a better score than Star Wars. Star Wars sets alone and is on this pedestal. It is, it's what makes those movies epic. It makes those movies incredible. Without that score, it could be a really weird movie. Yeah. If you really look at it, it could have been really weird. Uh, it could have been like Planet of the Apes, you know, which is a weird movie. It's still really good, but it would have been weird, right? You could have had a weird sci-fi score. Instead, you made this huge symphonic symphony orchestra creating it, and it makes a space opera, not a science fi movie, a yeah. space opera, you know, which is what elevates it there. I mean, even the new Star Wars things play homage homage to it. I mean, Ludwig Göransson is not John Williams, but what he because in his sound, but he also pays homage to John Williams. You know, the scores. I think The Mandalorian is an incredible score. Yeah. But in the middle of The Mandalorian score, you do have a little bit of a play that that honors yeah. the legacy of John Williams in it. And I mean, before you mention yours, John Williams is coming. He quote unquote retired after the Rise of Skywalker because he is like. 150 mm -hmm. years old he's but <laughs> he they just announced well that you know he's old uh but he just announced that he's coming out and he's doing the score for kenobi the new star wars show so there you go another emmy under his belt probably <laughs> oh that's gonna be great the yeah. only i think the 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 if he is going to do one more if he's going to do another film score i think what would be really fitting is if he did uh spielberg's new movie that's coming out um i think oh, the fableman yeah i think that would be really i think that could be really just a nice bookend to his career Just book you know? his, to both I of their that careers could be that would be great. great yeah yeah for me though my my number one was um was uh jurassic park it's i think the score is far too good for the movie no look the movie is a five-star movie to me but it's it's one of these things where it's like why is this score so unbelievably good for such a such like a weird like there's dinosaurs running around yet you have this this like classical masterpiece playing with a with a T-Rex. Dinosaur you know, movie like, shouldn't have that kind of score. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm so glad it does because it makes the movie incredible. But it's it's one of those things. It's like, 
why is this score just in this movie? Like, it's it's so funny to me that this incredible piece of really a classical like song, classical piece, like is in a dinosaur movie. And it's incredible. Uh, it, it's a song that I also whistle more than anything else. I whistle a lot uh, in my life. It's just a thing I do. And the two things I whistle are the Lord of the Rings and Jurassic Park. I just whistle it all the time. And exclusively. It's, that, that, and it's, it's not the whole thing. It's a. It's just the opening themes of each. <laughs> and I'm not yeah. complaining because they're phenomenal. I'm. I'm not gonna stop because they're just incredible to whistle, and they're just. They're just beautiful pieces. I mean, they're, they're, we. You know, it's John Williams. He's. He's absolutely incredible. He is the master of film scores. He's the probably the best of all time. Uh, he's just incredible. Incredible. Um, are there any quickly that you guys wanted to shout out? Just as like quick scores to shout out. Okay, did you have any? Yes, um, just one, uh, just one honorable mention. Johan Johansson's uh, score for the Theory of Everything. Okay, so nope. good. I, good. Yeah, I I don't even know where to begin to talk about it, but I I think that we would be remiss if we didn't at some point bring up Johan Johansson. I was going to bring him up for Arrival. I think his score for Arrival is fantastic, fantastic. too. Um, yeah. It's it's unfortunate that he died so young um, because he, he could have had an incredible, incredible career. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely. Gabe, is there anyone you want to bring up? Um, the Godfather, E.T., and To Kill a Mockingbird. I think those three oh. scores are just brilliant. Mm-hmm. Oh, Mockingbird. Um, I want to bring up Alvin Sylvester, or Alan Silvestri for Back to the Future. I think that's an incredible score. Yes. And you know, Alan Silvestri is another person who you might not know his name off the top of your head, but you know his music because he did the score for the Avengers. So the Avengers theme, that's him. So you you know it. <laughs> you know him. And Back to the Future, incredible, incredible movie. Um, I also want to bring up uh, John Barry, who did the score and sound of James Bond movies. James Bond is dedicated to John Barry. Uh, Dr. No is... He wrote he re, he rewrote the entire script uh, of of what the score was supposed to be. He he took it and re, rearranged it completely. And you have the sound of James Bond. And the last one I wanted to shout out. I just really enjoy it, but it's the score for Tron Legacy. It's oh, good. Yeah. It's groundbreaking. It's so cool. good. It's really oh, really cool. The Tron the new Tron. Yeah, Tron Legacy. Yeah. Oh yeah, Daft Punk is amazing. Daft Punk. It's yeah. so good. Gotta gotta give it a so shout. good. Yeah. Nice. So what I'm going to do with this, I think, too, for our, our listeners, if you don't, if you can't actually know what we're talking about, I'm going to make an entire playlist with all of these different, with a song from each of these different movies on it. So I'll, I'll put that out there. I'll share it on social media. Kay will probably listen to it on repeat for the next, like, three months or so. Three but I'll months put it out there. for the next rest of my dissertation life. is done. So I might be taking a break from film scores because I'm a doctor now. You say that, but you're probably still going to listen to all these scores. So yeah, I'll put it out there. I'll, we'll share it on on our social media, on the Facebook, on uh, on Twitter and such. So I'll put it out there. You guys can definitely listen to it and enjoy some of our, our favorite film scores. Thank you, Kay, for coming on again. It's always great having you. We'll have to get extra French fries for you this time again. Uh, Thank you. And we'll be back uh, next week with some more good stuff. But until then, enjoy the film scores and enjoy the controversy and chaos of the Oscars. (laughs)